This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. So here we are, Easter 2019. Easter's one of those religious weekends, and I mean religious in the religiosity type of way, you know, rituals and systems and people participate uh, in all sorts of activities, you know, religious activities, shall we say. Uh, They eat certain foods leading up to Easter. They go on fasts and processions. Uh, In the Philippines, they crucify themselves to crosses. Uh, There's all sorts of religious practices that go on uh, that people feel like they have to participate in. And growing up, my family's Easter ritual was turning up to church for the first time that year. Uh, and it was to be followed eight months later by a, a second visit at Christmas time. But it was, it was the first of our sometimes twice yearly visit to church. And I sound like I'm critic- criticising that, but I'm, I'm grateful that we went twice a year. It's better than not going at all. Uh, at least I got some exposure to Christian teaching and doctrine even if at that young age it didn't make much sense to me. But the problem that can occur with many religious practices is when they're done automatically, when they're done out of a habit to the point where you actually forget why you even do them. You forget what they're all about. Or as happens in many churches today, where people come to church as seekers, they're seeking answers, and they're welcomed into the church cafe. They hang out, they eventually go in and sit in the service, they listen to the positive message that's been spoken, and they become part of the gang, or they become part of the club, as it were. After a while, they start to help out as an usher, They start playing in the band. They start organising children's ministry. And yet, they've never actually been converted. They're just taking part in the club. And this is where our modern generation fails because we're all about self-esteem. Not just, not judging one another, not asking tough questions. And so throughout Christendom, the global... um, church, so you say, there are multitudes who name the name of Christ. They call themselves Christians, but they've never departed from iniquity. They've never repented. They've never called out for mercy. And they don't trust their lives to Jesus. In fact, someone recently questioned Ray Comfort, I think it was on Twitter or Facebook, And they said to him, are you saying there are multitudes who go to church who aren't Christians? And Ray replied, I'll go one further. There are many behind the pulpit who are not Christians. And Anton Bosch made a a similar point two weeks ago when he was here that churches are often full of well-meaning really nice people who haven't been born again, 
And perhaps part of the problem could be blamed on our modern concept of church where all are welcome, as opposed to New Testament church where only Christians, church was exclusively for Christians, not for the world. In fact, many churches now treat Sunday as the only outreach they do. It is the place where they specifically invite non-Christians to come. And the problem isn't so much that they invite non-Christians as it is that when they come, they're not confronted with the gospel. They're just made to feel comfortable and they're made to feel like they're already part of the body. They're already God's children. Even though there is no evidence of repentance or faith. Jesus, though, was very harsh in the Gospels when confronting people about their sins and their priorities, especially those who tried to cover it with religious talk. But because he knew that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked, he was not fooled by the pride of man's heart and its ability to deceive us. So Jesus warned that we must enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Notice that there are many who enter by the gate that leads to destruction. Because the gate is wide and the way is easy. You don't have to try to go to hell. It's the default downstream direction. You pretty much get there automatically. It's like buying something online. You know, you go through the checkout form and you don't have to sign up to the newsletter. The checkbox is already checked for you. It's set there by default. You have to specifically and willfully uncheck the do you want to sign up to our garbage newsletter uh, form. It happens by default. And it's the same for destruction. The destination that's already been entered into the GPS of your life was set by default to destruction. In contrast, Jesus says that the gate is small And the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That is a terrifying truth to comprehend. Not only is the gate small, but the pathway after the gate is very narrow and difficult. And there are few who manage to find the gate in the first place. We're told to strive to enter through the narrow door. The door to eternal life is not only narrow, but there's only one. One single, small door that leads to life. Only one way, one means by which we can find eternal life. And we'll come back to this shortly. But before we talk about the one and only way, we have to deal with 
why we even need a way. Who cares? Why can't we just enjoy our lives? Why all this religious mumbo-jumbo, as some might say? Have you ever been out to a really nice restaurant with your friends, perhaps, or your family? You've treated yourself to all the good stuff, you know, the, the really good stuff. You've even gone and ordered the best dessert. You've ordered a few drinks as well. And later, after you've enjoyed your meal and you're sitting there nice and plump and you're laughing and you've giggled away, all of a sudden your face turns pale when the receipt is put in front of you and you almost die of fright when you see the, the total of the amount owed. Imagine if that was more than you could afford to pay. You can imagine that the feeling in your gut is you realise that you have no means to pay this bill. Or perhaps you've done what I've done once, is you filled your car up with petrol, only to realise you don't have your wallet and you have no means to pay the debt you've just incurred. For most people, their first encounter with God may be like this. For the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, you earn death when you sin. And frightfully for many, it will be too late when they realise this. They don't realise that their stubbornness and unrepentant sin is storing up terrible punishment for them. For the day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. For it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. It doesn't matter how healthy or wealthy you are on that final day of your life, it will mean zip. It will mean nothing before God. For everyone must die and after that be judged by God. And only righteousness can deliver from the sentence of death. The problem is that we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The very best that we have to offer God is our used toilet paper or sanitary pads. It ain't going to cut it. Ever since Adam, people have been trying to earn their way to God. But no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, by doing the right actions. You can never be made right with God. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. A man is not justified by the works of the law, 
since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. There is no getting around the fact that our efforts and works can't earn favour with God. The deception that our life is some great cosmic scale where you can outweigh the bad you do by doing some good things is one of the greatest lies ever told because that's not how justice works. Justice doesn't care what good you may have done. It cares about setting things right with the things you have not done right. Some think that they will be okay with God because they've experienced things. They've experienced miracles. Perhaps they've experienced supernatural events. But Jesus warned that on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful or mighty works in your name? And then will he declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So being a miracle worker is no proof of salvation, nor is prophecy or exorcism. Jesus brings it back to a matter of righteousness. These people have not departed from sin. They have an external appearance of spirituality, but they're still rotten on the inside. And that's why the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus both began and consisted of calling people to repentance. John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And likewise, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Mark's gospel account says, Jesus came in to Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Many people probably don't think that Jesus' ministry called people to repentance. They just see him as the nice man who taught nice principles of morality. But Jesus was very clear. And he spent much of his earthly ministry calling people to repentance. For unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, he said. But the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that interesting that that's what God wants, is for people to come to repentance? I'm sure if you asked the average Christian, what would God want most for someone? I could only imagine what the answer would be, but it probably wouldn't be repentance. But God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he is now declaring to men that all all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness 
That's why God is calling people to repentance. Because there's a day coming that they have to face a day of judgment. And God knows that very well. And he knows that unless they repent, they will perish. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The first step is a humbling oneself before God and acknowledging that we're wrong, he's right. Because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a very key point to remember. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the one small door we mentioned earlier is difficult to find because it requires humility. And it's easily missed because we have to stoop down, as it were, on our hands and knees to see it. And most people are not willing to do that. It requires humility. The key to repentance, the scripture points out, is godly sorrow. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Or as another translation puts it, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Godly sorrow produces a genuine repentance. And repentance is the right response of the human heart to then trust in God's solution to our problem. This is not our solution. We can't fix it. We're the problem. But the solution was hinted at right back in the Garden of Eden. This is nothing new. When God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We get this picture of a seed. A seed is coming. And then again to Abraham when God said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God's plan from the beginning was to send a solution to our problem. But the problem with our problem is that there is no easy solution. Because God is holy and just. He can't just let it go. He can't turn a blind eye on sin. And so God hinted to Abraham about how he was going to deal with our dilemma. We dealt with this this morning when we read from Romans. After God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham was about to bring down the knife, God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So it was revealed that God would provide a payment for our sin. And then Isaiah prophesied, I believe it was a thousand years later, very specific details about what God was going to do. That surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a very clear picture for me that God was going to send his chosen one to redeem Israel. He was going to pay for their sin. And not just Israel's sin, because all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, as we read. And of course, this is what Easter is supposed to be about. The death of and the resurrection of the Messiah. As Peter said, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. God sent a saviour. One way, one means by which we could be saved. That's why there is no salvation and anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is why Jesus cried out to the people, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He was the only one provided by the Father as a sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here is the key to it all, that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus shall not perish. In other words, whoever trusts in, believes, places their 
faith in Jesus will live. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Or as John also puts it, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And furthermore, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I am telling you the truth. He who believes has eternal life. Because to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you know something? I'll give you a great revelation right now. God's children don't perish. If you are a child of God, you won't be cast away. Jesus confirmed this to Martha when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Remember what he asked Martha after that? Do you believe this? We should ask the same. Do we believe that? He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he may die physically, yet shall he live. And so God has ordained that we can be saved by believing, trusting in Jesus alone. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not by works, not by your efforts, not by your persistence, but according to his mercy, because we're justified by grace, we can be saved by God's grace through our humble faith in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're not saved by grace. Uh, you're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the channel by which you access God's grace. Slight difference. You are saved by grace through faith. So it's not your faith that you can't boast in your faith. Because it's not the faith. Faith is the means by which you access the grace. It is all God. All the glory goes to God. So like Abraham, we can obtain righteousness through faith. For the one who does not work but believes in him 
who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We read that this morning. And remember back that that was the dilemma that we had. We needed righteousness because riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The problem is we didn't have any righteousness of our own, but Jesus does. And because of his substitutionary death on the cross, we can now have his righteousness transferred to our account. Our debt can be paid because of his righteousness. Our unrighteousness is covered or removed because of him. Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Once someone repents and trusts alone in Jesus, their outstanding invoice of debt is cancelled. In fact, I've heard of folks who have earned a lot of money in a very short amount of time, and they very happily spent all that money, only to realise later that they're supposed to pay tax on it. And so they end up with a record of debt from the tax office that they can no longer afford to pay. Our record of debt from a life of sin was more than we could pay from the first sin, let alone the 40,000th sin that we committed. So praise God that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because in him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Good Friday is, of course, the day where Jesus' crucifixion is remembered. It's a day a large portion of the world remembers him paying the ultimate price with his death. Because remember, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift, notice that, free, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages we earned was death. In fact, we will likely still die unless the Lord returns before that. But Jesus took away the power of death. And he removed the judgment due us for our sin. It's an interesting distinction that Jesus doesn't save us from our sin. He saves us from the penalty 
of our sin. He gives us the power to resist it, but he doesn't save us from sin, he saves us from the penalty of sin, the judgment due because of our sin. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus conquered death, that is, through his own sacrificial death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is not the end of those who trust in him. It's interesting that it says, through fear of death, we're subject to a lifelong slavery. I believe that is the greatest fear. If you ask an honest person out in the world what their greatest fear is, it's the fear of death. Because they know they have a guilty conscience and they don't know what's out there. It's the fear of death and it enslaves humanity. But because he lives, you will live also. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is one thing I haven't yet mentioned, and it's equally important. And I hinted to it just before. Because he lives, you will live also. We don't worship a dead God. Death could not hold him down. The grave could not keep him in. On the third day, he rose again, conquering death and solidifying once and for all that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not the way, the truth, and the death. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There is life in him. He is the door. If anyone enters by him, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is one way, a very narrow way, that requires humility to even see it and brokenness to find it. And that way is the Lord Jesus. If you enter by him, you will be saved. If you abide in him, you will bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for us. Therefore, he is able to save us completely. There is therefore now some There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And I think the key to this verse is not that there is no condemnation, but it's to those who are in Christ Jesus, because that's where there is no condemnation, to those who are in Jesus. Now, I'm sure you already know this. In fact, there's probably atheistic theologians who understand what I've just said. But it's not enough to know this stuff. So how do you know you abide in Christ? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Interesting. By this, by your love for one another, will all men know that you are my disciples. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is a very key verse, because if you read the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, he constantly mentions the commandments of God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he keeps his Father's commandments, and then he commands his disciples to keep his commandments. But he actually says what his commandments are. And John reiterates it in the epistle here. What is he talking about when he talks about the commandments of Christ? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking about the 613 Levitical laws? This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's it. That is his commandments. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, love one another. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who abides in me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I want to make this clear. You don't become a Christian by loving one another. You become a Christian by repenting and believing the Lord Jesus. The evidence of your faith, the evidence of your belief in him will be the obedience to his commandments. Does that make sense? Big distinction. You don't become a Christian 
because you love one another. It doesn't make you a Christian. You become a Christian through repentance and faith. You turn from your sin. You trust in Christ alone and his righteousness. And when you've done that, the evidence of the truth of that will be love for one another. As I mentioned at the beginning, the churches are full with people who say that they've trusted in Jesus. But then they go off on the weekend and they start fornicating. They go off and they get plastered and they live life for themselves. They yell and scream at their parents or yell and scream at their workmates. There's no love whatsoever in their, in their life for one another. And that's the fruit. Or as Galatians says, that's the works of the flesh. All their sinful, wicked behavior is the proof that they are actually not trusting in Jesus alone. They haven't repented. Whereas in Galatians, it contrasts the works of the flesh with what? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is what naturally comes out when the Spirit is abiding in you. Does that make sense? So that is, that is good news. Good news for a Resurrection Sunday. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank him that he did not wait for us to not be sinners before he died for us. Because otherwise he would never have died for us. We would have been lost eternally. But though while we, even before we were born... While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Let's give thanks. Father, on this day when many remember the resurrection of Christ, Father, we, we thank you that he is alive. We thank you that he has conquered death. Death no longer has dominion over him. Lord, we thank you that he was the first fruit of the resurrection. And Lord, that that gives us hope. Because if we are in him, we too will rise. Father, thank you for your glorious gospel message, your glorious message of good news. That all who believe... In the name of the Son of God, may live. Father, I pray you would be at work in the hearts of any who may be here who have not trusted in you. Father, there is nothing more important than eternal salvation. Lord, it can be so easy to become comfortable in churches Just get along with the club. Father, may that not be the case here. Father, may salvation, eternal life be of priority 
Lord, I pray your spirit would do a work in this place. Father, bless our fellowship together. Help us in this week, Lord, to be a, a light for your good news. To make Christ known among this dark and sinful world. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.